Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Book. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Today's interview is with Karen Neander, Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. Her new book, A Mark of the Mental, in Defense of Informational Teleosemantics, is just out from the MIT Press. The two biggest problems of understanding the mind are consciousness and intentionality, the latter being the problem of how we can have thoughts and perceptions that are about other things. For example, a thought about a tree that you saw when you walked down the street or a perception of a tree. Intentionality is difficult to understand, not least because we're able to have thoughts or perceptions about things that don't exist, like unicorns, or anything in the future, for that matter. A naturalistic theory of aboutness or intentionality will be an account of this feature of the mind that involves only those elements that can be found in nature, like causal relationships or evolution. In her new book, Neander synthesizes a number of these elements, including causal relationships, a particular view of evolutionary functions, and an account of second-order similarity, which is similarity relationships, to provide a causal informational version of teleosemantics that explains the content of sensory perceptual states. For example, the content of a toad's perception when it perceives what we would call a fly. On her view, the content of a perceptual state is what is supposed to cause it, in the sense that it is what that state is adapted to respond to. She articulates differences between her account and other versions of teleosemantics, and she puts her theory to work in responses to a series of problems that have been raised for teleosemantic theories. This is a well-written, clearly argued book by one of the leading figures in contemporary philosophy of mind, particularly those working on the problem of intentionality. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Karen Yender. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure um, to be talking to one of the you know leading theorists about um, naturalistic semantics. And the new book, as, I, as I've described, is a, is a synthesis of a lot of work over the past, um, the past few decades, um, to which you have been a major contributor. Um, and I, I like one of, the, one of the sentences that you have uh, in the book uh, that kind of very nicely encapsulates in simple form uh, what, you're, what you're doing is this idea that a, a sensory perceptual representation refers to what is supposed to cause it. And what's interesting about that sentence is that the, the only word perhaps of it that doesn't have a lot of work behind it is the word uh. <laughs> the rest of it, it all the rest of it all involves a lot of a lot of very detailed and interesting work um, that you talk about you know, sort of throughout the the book um, but before we get to talking about you know your your view of of naturalized semantics um, can you just give a little background about you know how you came to philosophy and to the topics that you're interested in and to the writing of this book yeah um so I don't, I don't feel that I have a terribly interesting story to tell about how I came to philosophy. As an undergraduate, I really didn't know what philosophy was, and I sampled it and immediately felt at home with it. I mean, I remember in high school occasionally asking teachers what are, in retrospect, philosophical questions and getting very embarrassed responses, I'd say, and being told by my friends that I, I thought too much. And, um, you know, you go into a philosophy class and all of a sudden here are these people who are encouraging you to think very hard about these deep and difficult and awkward questions. And so I just, you know, loved it. And um, I've always been interested in philosophy of mind. I know, uh, you know, if you look back at my um, research papers and so on. It seems as though I've been working in philosophy of biology a lot of the time. But right from the start, I was the philosophy of biology I did was always motivated by an interest in philosophy of mind. And um, so as an, as an undergraduate, I was interested in free will and moral responsibility. 
and started my dissertation on the notion of mental illness and the relevance of insanity to um, moral responsibility. And that morphed into a discussion of whether illness uh, in relation to the mind was the same kind of thing as illness in relation to the body and the nature of biological explanations and psychological explanations and this concept of function and dysfunction and how they applied in the biological, straightforwardly biological context and how they might apply in relation to the mind. So this was in um, around 1980 I was working on functions and it was early days as far as teleosemantics was concerned. So Dennis Stamp had written uh, something on teleosemantics and a few other people had written a little bit. But um, mostly in philosophy of mind, it was toward the end of the heyday of what now sometimes gets called classical functionalism. And uh, so I think the first paper I ever heard on teleosemantics was given by Kim Sterelny. And um, I was immediately fascinated by this idea that this notion of function and dysfunction that I'd been working on in relation to this question about mental illness, whether it had a wide, a more wide application to issues in philosophy of mind. Um, and so this uh, book is really an extension of that. It's um, uh, an interest in intentionality, which I think is um, if not the most fundamental aspect of the mind, is certainly one of the most fundamental aspects of the mind. And, and to my way of thinking, it might be the most important aspect of the mind in, in the sort of the deepest sense. I think it's what allows for people to have purposes and make decisions and, um, uh, you know, have priorities and plans and so on. So in some sense, it's, it's a prerequisite for uh, our mental lives to be meaningful. One of the things that you address at the beginning of the book, I don't, is is the idea that consciousness is the hard problem. This is like the second, the second hardest problem. So there's there's a sort of you know priority who has the hardest problem, and um, so I mean, do you you kind of concede that? But uh, uh, what you just said makes me think that you know maybe maybe you know the problem of intentionality, which will talk about in a second, um, is actually more fundamental, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, of course, the title of the book comes from a, a slight switch around Brentano's phrase um, where he says intentionality is the mark of the mental, that which distinguishes minds from mindless matter. Um, and I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't feel that I understand consciousness well enough to make that claim. So I'm staying agnostic on whether you can have consciousness without intentionality. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if it came to the choice, if you could pull them apart and I had to choose between consciousness and intentionality, I think very reluctantly I would choose intentionality. So in that sense I think it's in some ways more important. And I think it's more tractable at the moment. I think we can make some progress on understanding the nature of intentionality. And I, so I felt that I could contribute to solving that problem rather than just wallow around in how difficult it was, basically. So, <laughs> so that, was, that was why I chose it. Um, okay, well, you, you've mentioned, you know, teleosemantics, which uh, your, your theory... Um, uh, you know, falls under that that broad umbrella um, and intentionality. So maybe maybe for for our listeners who aren't quite so intimately acquainted um, with this problem, maybe you can explain a bit. You know, what what is the problem of intentionality? I mean, um, and what is it to provide, or what would be the requirements for providing a naturalistic uh, solution to it? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think intentionality is one of these words that people do use in somewhat different ways in philosophy of mind. But 
um, Brentano once uses the phrase, or at least he's translated as using the phrase, refers to a content when he characterizes intentionality. And what I see myself as doing in discussing it is giving a theory of reference for mental representations, or, or at least a class of mental representations. And, um, but I suppose more vaguely, you could say that the uh, intentional power of a mind is its power to represent. So it's its representational power. And to give a naturalistic theory of it, you know, again, that's another of those words that people use in different ways. But I, for, you know, when I was a child, I went to Sunday school and was given these pictures of angels looking down from the heavens. And I suppose I believed uh, in a immortal and immaterial soul, though I'm sure I didn't uh, express it in those words at the time. Um, and when I gave up that uh, picture of the mind, I um, remained fascinated or became fascinated with the broad question of how to understand various aspects of our mental lives within a more scientific picture. And so basically to give a, a naturalistic theory of intentionality is to try to do that and to succeed in doing that, of course, if it's, if it's naturalistic, it won't invoke anything um, mystical or magical or miraculous. Um, it will try to stick within the scientific picture of the world. And, of course, we don't have just one scientific picture of the world. There are uh, competing uh, approaches within cognitive science and neuroscience and so on to how you go about studying the mind. But I, it, it's a sort of adopting a respect for science and trying to give a theory of intentionality uh, in a way that uh, is um, kind of respectful to the science, the best science we have in your view of uh, the mind. You know, again, this is somewhat preliminary, but also kind of lays the groundwork for for your eventual theory. Uh, this this tie with with the sciences and cognitive science in particular, um, uh, you give what you call a methodological argument for you know why this problem of intentional intentionality of explaining how it is that you know we can have thoughts or states that are about other things. Um, that this is a, you know, is a, is a real problem that, in other words, that, that cognitive scientists actually do posit states, um, representations um, in their, um, in their explanations. And, and the, the opponent here, obviously, are those, those people who also look at the science, you know, at cognitive science, um, and argue that, um, Actually, this is kind of a pseudo problem uh, because the cognitive scientists, again, don't um, uh, don't need uh, any sorts of uh, representational states in order to do the explanatory work that they um, uh, that they're doing or that they want to do. So, could you just um, you know give us a flavor of um, how you respond to those people and, and defend the idea that, no, this, this is actually looking at the kind of science as it is done, um, the problem of intentionality uh, is, is a genuine problem, you know, even within the sciences as, as we know them now. Yeah, so this takes like three chapters in the book, but just to try to give the flavor of it, um, I, um, so I don't try to uh, address the, anti-representationalists head-on. I just say, look, here is this uh, useful cognitive science. People are explicitly talking about representations. And it's not just talk about information processing. It's talk about representations in the sense that they're uh, positing representation, representational states um, that can be erroneous. They can misrepresent and they indeed you know, investigate cases where there is misrepresentation in order to try to understand what the structure of the representational states is and what the processes are that are contributing to the creation of these representations. 
So they, you know, many of them just do very explicitly talk this way, and even neuroscience is fairly replete with talk of representation. And um, I don't think it's something they should feel defensive about. I, I think that um, it's a useful way of talking, and I think it comes out of mainly two things. I think it comes out of... Um, First off, a sort of general background idealization that goes on. When you do any kind of uh, physiology or neurophysiology, you're trying to give not just a description of a single system, but of you're trying to give useful descriptions, some of the time at least, you're trying to give useful descriptions of types of systems. You're trying to get some generality. And to do that, uh, you you start describing, or what they do do is they describe uh, the way systems operate when they're functioning normally or properly. And that's not the only thing they do. They do other things as well, of course, but that but that's, plays a fairly central role in um, physiology and neurophysiology. And then I think when you move into talking about how uh, the brain's performs its information processing functions, and you add in this talk of information processing, you're now talking about um, information, you know, what is it in the uh, functional sense? Is it that these brains are supposed to be doing with this information? What information are they supposed to be carrying? What are they supposed to do by way of processing it? Um, how are they supposed to be transforming the information? And that sounds like a sort of as if I'm using a moral term, but of course I'm not. I'm, I'm talking in terms of what is it that they do when they're functioning properly? What were they adapted to do? What were they selected to do? These various different mechanisms in the brain. And um, I think already as soon as you've done that, you've got a the aboutness of information combined with the so-called normativity of talk of uh, uh, fun systems functioning normally or properly and really you've got the beginnings of the talk of representation at that point and it's you know I think I think the methodological argument for teleosemantics is to the effect that look you know you've already got this you've got the aboutness of information and you've got the so-called normativity from functions let's see how far you can go with this in developing a theory of reference because reference is aboutness and one of its uh, you know, puzzling features is this fact that you've got this invaluable notion, you know, a representation which permits misrepresentation and which allows you to speak of correctness and incorrectness and accuracy and inaccuracy and truth and falsity and so on. Let's see how far you can go developing this idea using this notion of function and the notion of information to get out a theory of mental representation. And you also, so mental representation, of course, is a wide, involves, you know, thoughts and, you know, propositional attitudes generally, but also um, the sensory perceptual states that you actually focus on and, and um you, you may you you make note early on that uh, you in, originally intended to kind of give a solution to the whole problem in a way, and you've you've scaled back your your um, uh, what you wanted to do, and and have focused on sensory perceptual representations in particular, and, and so a lot of the the examples that you give are like perception of a of a line or of a particular sound or something like that. So fairly, uh, fairly early, you might say, um, uh, perceptual representations. Can, can you say something about the importance of the, of the, of that restriction? Yeah. I, um, I think that when people give naturalistic theories of content, they often don't use this distinction between conceptual and non-conceptual representations. It's a distinction that's played more of a role in the consciousness literature, really, than the uh, theory of mental content literature. Um, 
And so a lot of theories, not all of them, but a lot of theories are really trying to do both at once, give a theory of non-conceptual representation and a theory of conceptual representation, sort of all in one go. And this involves, it usually involves treating conceptual thought as having original intentionality. And so original intentionality is intentionality that uh, does not derive from other independently existing intentionality. So it might derive from something, might derive from other natural phenomena, but it doesn't derive from other independently existing intentionality. And I suspect that that's uh, a mistake and that um, a lot of conceptual thought at least is pro probably doesn't have original int intentionality in that sense. And so we need to do the simple stuff first. Uh, so that's the, um, you know, I, I see myself as trying to kind of build the foundations on which uh, hopefully me but also other people will then try to build different kinds of structures to provide a theory of content for concepts. Um, but more practically speaking, I got to the point where I just thought I'm never going to be able to close this book off because the more you get into uh, thinking about how a theory of concepts should go, the more complicated it seems and the more issues and problems there are to be dealt with. And it felt like my one book was going to, if it was ever going to finish talking satisfactorily about concepts, it was going to turn into three books. And so I just decided, well, okay, I'm just going to stop it here. And I carved off some of the chapters I'd written already on concepts and um, decided to limit it to non-conceptual representations. So you, you start, you know, baby steps, but, but not so baby. <laughs> Uh, you start by giving a, a simple uh, causal informational uh, version of teleosemantics, as you put it, you, you, the a, a theory that you call CT for short. Um, uh, could you just explain perhaps the basic elements of, of that initial theory? I mean, you, you, you add a, an, another element to it uh, later on in the book in, in response to some particular some particular problems, but, you know, let's just start with the initial simple or relatively simple um, causal informational version of teleosemantics or CT. Yeah. Um, so I should actually add just to what I was saying before that I don't see myself as only talking about very early uh, perceptual representations. I see myself in the book as trying to take myself to the brink of talking about concepts and, Toward the end of chapter eight, I start talking about how you could have higher order representations cued by a number of different lower order sensory perceptual representations and how they could have different weightings and so on. So I don't think, you know, I, I think at that point you're dealing with more concept-like representations. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, so the initial simple causal informational teleosemantics, I think is really much the same as a proposal put forward by Dennis Stamp uh, way back in 1977, I think it was. And um, the idea is that, you know, it's a basically a, a twist on a causal theory of reference. Um, and the I idea is that perceptual, sensory perceptual representations don't represent whatever causes them but they represent what's supposed to cause them in this teleosemantic sense. That is, you consider the function of the system that produces the representation, these sensory perceptual pathways, and you consider what it was, what these pathways were uh, adapted for responding to by producing the representational state in question. And that's... Um, uh, that's the basic idea. So I think it's a fairly intuitive idea. It's just that people have dismissed the idea of combining a causal theory of reference with teleosemantics for, I think, quite wrong reasons, quite mistaken reasons. But 
partly because they were they were too ambitious, I think. I mean, I think that partly they thought, well, you can't have a causal theory of reference for a thought about um, tomorrow, for example. You know, tomorrow can't cause a thought about tomorrow because, you know, tomorrow is not here yet. So I think that part of it was they were being too ambitious. They were trying to get a theory to do too much at once. And partly um, it's ideas about the way teleosemantics was supposed to be. You know, people would say things like, um, if you're going to give a teleosemantic theory, you have to worry about the effects of the representation because functions are effects of things. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is making it legitimate to give a causal theory of reference that's also a teleosemantic theory by saying, look, you know, sensory perceptual systems have these response functions. They were adapted for responding in specific ways to specific environmental features. And that's um, something that we can take advantage of when we're trying to give a theory of content for them. Uh, you mentioned, you know, response functions. So that's a a particular interpretation of the notion of function that is used in teleosemantics. And there's there's a number of these uh, of of concepts of function, which you you know, Cummins functions and, and so forth that you go through. We don't we don't need to go through them, but I think what might be helpful um, uh, is to maybe perhaps compare your view of this this view of response functions with uh, maybe uh, Millikan's uh, uh, version of teleosemantics. You know how how she uses the notion of a of a you know normal or with a capital N uh, proper function as opposed to the way the way you develop the notion of function. Yeah. Um... So I, I think Millick and I have basically the same notion of function if you just go to the heart of what theory says. We both independently developed etiological theories of functions, which the basic idea of that is that the function of something is what it was selected for or what it was adapted for. And um, I think we both think, you know, there are other meanings that one could assign to the word function, but we think that this notion of function plays an important role in biology and an important role in, in a theory of content. So I think that that's basically the same. I, it is true that we say some different things, and, and in various places Millikan says, you know, functions are always effects, and that's why you can't have a kind of um, uh, like a Dretzky-like indicate a semantics version of teleosemantics and where you can't have a causal theory of reference. It's a teleosemantic theory. And I think that that's just a mistaken understanding of really her own uh, position on functions. I think that if you use a basic analysis of functions, it permits response functions. It's just, so I, I think that's a misunderstanding. So, uh, the idea of a response function is using this same notion of function and um, just saying, look, all of these etiological, different standard etiological theories of function, slightly, you know, worded in slightly different ways, they all permit response functions. Um, and, uh, I've, you know, from, for a long time I just found it puzzling that people made this claim that you couldn't do teleosemantics this way and, Took me a while to figure out why people were thinking that way, um, but what does differ between Millikan and I is the use to which we put it in our theory of content. And Millikan's theory has shifted over the years to some extent, but when she's being most distinctively Millikan, if you can put it that way, when her theory is most distinctive as compared to other teleosemantic theories, she is emphasizing the the role of what she calls the consumer, uh, where the consumer is the system that uses the representation to perform its proper function. That is, it uses it used it in the past to do whatever it was that it did that uh, contributed to that system being selected. And um, so it's a kind of consumer-based uh, theory of content. And I'm proposing that, at least in the case of perceptual representations, we need to focus on the uh, function of the perceptual system and the input 
conditions. You know, so it's a kind of more input-based theory that focuses on the functions of the producer rather than the consumer. So maybe uh, could you perhaps walk us through an example of, you know, CT at work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, well, so one of the examples is this much abused example of the frog or the toad. And um, I say abused because I think a lot of the, dis- you know, people get tired of the discussion of, of that kind of example. Um, but one of the things that prompted me to, to write at length about the toad um, in this and in an earlier paper was that I, I was struck by the fact that people never bothered to actually read the cognitive neuroethology on it. Um, and I thought that when you did read the cognitive neuroethology that some of the answers people were proposing, some of the contents they were assigning to the frog or the toad's perceptual representation when it went hunting were just utterly implausible. Um, You know, it seemed to come out of the wild blue yonder if you looked at the information processing explanations of the recognitional capacities of the toad, for instance. And so, you know, there is this um, example in the literature that people talk about where they talk about a frog um, snapping at something that's small, dark and moving. And the question is, what is it representing this visual target as? Is it representing it as something that's small, dark and moving or is it representing it as a fly, say, or is it representing it as um, uh, a nutritious packet of chemicals or something of that sort. Um, And Millikan's theory, if you apply it, actually uh, requires that you say something like it's a nutritious packet of chemicals. That's um, something that Carolyn Price says uh, in one of her books, and I think that's right. Millikan would characterize it as something like frog food, but it, it sort of comes, you know, that shorthand for um, something nutritious. And I, you know, I think when you look at the cognitive neuroethology and look at, um, you know, what information is being extracted and you look at the principles that people use when they're doing an information processing style explanation of the process, they're um, using various principles like uh, visible properties have to be represented before invisible properties are. And so I think that um, uh, it, Millikan's theory, I think, is not, a, not friendly to information processing explanations of perception. And I think she has sort of more Gibsonian leanings. I don't think this is an accident. I think that people are coming to this debate about what the frog, what's going on in the frog with quite different methodological assumptions, you know, about how to do theories of perception. And so I'm trying to be very explicit that I'm uh, trying to be friendly to information processing explanations of it. And if you apply CT, you have to take into account the causal sensitivities of the frog when its perceptual system is operating uh, normally, and it's causally sensitive to things like the uh, well. In the case of the toad, that I discussed the toad in detail rather than the frog. In the case of the toad, what it's sensitive to, what its visual system is sensitive to, is um, differences in the size and the shape and the motion relative to shape of the stimulus. And from there, it just goes straight to its. Um, you know, it does a little bit of extra processing um, in terms of uh, motor coordination and depth perception and more precise localization and so on. But after that, it goes straight to its motor system. It's not like it goes to some conceptual repertoire and thinks about food. You know, it's just picking up a certain size, shape, motion, which, you know, I, I, for shorthand I say worm-like motion, but it doesn't need to be a worm anything that's, you know, um, of a certain shape, preferably elongated, not too big, depending on what kind of species of toad it is, and moving in the direction of its longest axis, that's what it's, that's what it's um, preferentially responding to. 
And so CT gives you that result. It says, um, you know, what is it causally responding to? What are its causal sensitivities? Look at those and look at what it was adapted to respond to. So if it isn't responding to it at all, as in the case of nutritional properties of the stimulus, then it's just ruled out on that ground. Um, but if it is responding to those causal features such as size, shape, and motion, um, then those are candidate content uh, properties. Okay. Well, let me. You mentioned uh, Gibson, and um, uh, so let me. So let me just let me just ask a question, a follow up question on that. Um, so you know, famously, he he argued at least um, fairly crudely. Let me. In, in my words, that what we perceive in perception uh, are affordances, right? You know, ways in which things can be, uh, you know, that I can use something. For example, I perceive a chair as, as you know, sittable or, or in some sense, you know, way that I'm going to use it. Um, so how, how does... So, he, and of course, he was also, you know, very obviously intensely interested in, in the in perception and what we, what we perceive, um, do you do you think affordances are among the hidden properties then that we don't you know that the visual system is not attuned to? I don't know that I'd want to quite put it like that. I think that um, nutritional properties of the visual stimulus for the toad are certainly hidden, and I think that that's what Millikan's theory of content actually gives you rather than the affordance, even though she has Gibsonian sympathies and is developing a kind of more Gibsonian notion of information um, more recently. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that um, obviously the size of something is relevant to its um, graspability and we can uh, perceive its size. I think that um, things like its size that we perceive are relevant to its affordance and that the brain figures out, um, you know, whether it's graspable and so on on the basis of those. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I think that affordances are a little bit further along. I mean, in Gibson's view, um, there was no representation prior to the representation of the affordance. And so, I, you know, it's not really in my view, a very complete theory of perception. It's not a, a satisfying theory of perception. And I find information processing explanations much more plausible. So what worries me about um, a theory like Millikan's for perceptual representations is that it doesn't give you uh, the kind of representations that are needed for information processing explanations. Now, if you know, if that's not the right approach to take, if you really need a more Gibsonian approach as opposed to an information processing approach, then that's a different discussion, right? So that, you know, I'm premising my discussion on this information processing approach being the most promising approach we have at the moment. There's a number of problems raised for naturalizing semantics that you go through in the book. I think you, you have them divided into six. Um, and a lot of them, they're basically, how does this theory give us um, determinate enough content? Um, and some people put this in terms of a, a disjunction problem and others put it in terms of, you know, if you have two co-occurring co properties or properties that come at the same time in some way necessarily or perhaps within the creature's environment. Um, and then there are also problems about if you're, if you're going to have a causal informational element to your theory, then there's what, what you call the stopping problem, which is, you know, if, uh, you know, given that you can, you have various steps along any causal chain from some distal object to the representational system. And, you know, why should, the content be determined by what's at the end of that causal chain rather than some intermediate step. So you, you, you go through all of these and you, you elaborate the, 
the basic CT account in order to account for some of them. Uh, but maybe you could just to give us a flavor of how CT addresses um, at least some of the, you know, at least one of the initial problems that are raised for uh, for this type of account in terms of the determinacy or the problem of indeterminacy of, of the content that these types of theories deliver? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, uh, as you say, I discussed six indeterminacy challenges um, for the theory, but some of them are pretty straightforwardly answered by CT. And really the work is, is involved is justifying the fact that you can have a causal theory of reference in combination with teleosemantics. So Fodor raised his um, uh, version of the indeterminacy problem that he called the disjunction problem um, in relation to this notorious case of the frog. And he, he, he imagines a situation where the frog um, I think, he, as he tells it, uh, the frog only eats flies and flies are always smart, uh, small, dark-moving dots in the environment in which the frog evolved. And um, all small-moving dots are also uh, flies in this environment, so they always co-occur. Um, and he says, look, if you're, if you're giving a teleosemantic theory, you have this problem that if it's adaptive to snap out your tongue in the presence of something small, dark and moving, it's equally adaptive to snap out your tongue at a fly and vice versa. So, you know, how does Darwin, so to speak, distinguish between these two kinds of cases? But, of course, Fodor didn't think it was a problem for his own causal theory of content. And... Once you have a causal theory of reference combined with teleosemantics, it's not a problem for that kind of teleosemantics because causal relations are property sensitive, right? So, you know, um, I remind people of this nice example from Fred Dretzky where he talks about a soprano singer uh, singing a song and her singing shatters a glass and, as Fred points out, um, the shattering of the glass is not caused by the meaning of the words that she sang. It's caused by something, you know, some other property of the singing, the, the frequency or the, some sort of physical property of the singing. And so you have an event that has a, a lot of different properties and it's causing another event, the shattering of the glass. And some of the properties of the cause are relevant to the shattering and some aren't. And that's what I mean when I say causation is property sensitive. So you can have a situation where, um, okay, suppose, you know, flies always co-occurred with small, dark moving things um, in the environment in which the frog evolved. Um, and Fodor is absolutely right. If it's adaptive to snap in the presence of one, it's equally adaptive to snap in the presence of the other. But it doesn't mean that the frog was ever uh, snapping in response to, say, the flyhood of the visual target, it being a fly, or in response to its nutritional properties. Um, it can snap in response to it being small, dark and moving, say, uh, without snapping in response to, you know, it having these other properties. And so, you know, putting it together with the teleosemantics, you can say, quite correctly, it was selected for responding to small, dark moving things. Um, it wasn't selected for responding to um, it being a fly or to being nutritious because it never did respond to it. You can't respond here is just a causal notion. You know, it wasn't caused to, to respond in this way by, the, um, by it being a fly or by it being a nutritious, not, not in the... Um, relevant sense in which I'm using it in when I talk about the response functions. So there are other problems, obviously, um, one being the relation um, of determinants to determinables, right, often, you know, red as opposed to color. I don't know what other examples um, come to mind. Maybe a species genus is, is very similar. Um, and there the idea is just that, well, whenever you represent uh, let's just say a color like like red. Um, you're also you are also representing 
uh, a larger class of which it is a particular type, uh, namely color. Um, so in response to this type of problem, you know, for again, for the determinacy of content, uh, you introduce the, the last, the third element of your, of your theory, which is a, a type of um, isomorphism, or as you put it, second order similarity element to, uh, to the theory. So could you explain a bit about um, this, this particular problem and then, uh, and then your, the way you elaborate the original theory in order to, um, to respond to it? Uh, yeah, thanks. I, um, so I, I do think that CT on its own uh, goes some of the way toward dealing with this. I think that um, uh, some process can be responding to the redness of an object as opposed specifically to its being scarlet or its being coloured. Um, so I think that CT doesn't, uh, you know, it's not completely hopeless by any means in the face of this kind of issue, but I think that um, once you introduce the idea of second-order similarity, you can give a more fully fleshed-out answer to that kind of problem. And so the idea of second-order similarity, um, the easiest example I could think of in relation to this was this example of when you go into a clinic, say you go into a clinic and you have a, a back problem and the doctor says to you, give me a number from 1 to 10, 1 is no pain, and 10 is the worst imaginable. And um, you know what to do. I mean, you, you might hate having to do it, but you, you know what you're supposed to do. And one of the aspects of that um, kind of representation is that you're being given a, a sort of a, a similarity space, so to speak, of representing elements, and you're also told what the... Uh, relevant spaces for the things that you can represent. So you're given a, a sort of range of numbers and you're told these should be used to represent a range of pain, pain intensities. And you're being asked to pick the number that's analogous to the pain in the sense that it has this sort of analogous relations to the other numbers as your pain has to the other pains. And um, this is a notion of second-order similarity. There's, there's not much in common between the number six and a specific pain outside of this system. Um, and But within the system, you can see that they have analogous places within their respective similarity spaces. And um, different similarity spaces can allow for more or less resolution. So you can have very crude um, similarity spaces that don't allow for a lot of resolution and you can have very fine-grained ones um, and I think that once you introduce second-order similarity you can give a more precise answer to the uh, question of just how determinate is the content in this kind of case where you're talking about does it represent scarlet does it represent red does it represent color and so on um, so it's partly for that reason that I introduce it, but it's also partly because I think it makes um, the, the teleosemantic theory more robust in the face of um, kind of cases that are similar to Hume's missing shade of blue and take into account the fact that some of the uh, development of our sensory perceptual system is going to be normal but idiosyncratic in the sense that one person's sensory perceptual system, even if it's normal, won't be exactly calibrated the same as somebody else's. And um, so I think the kind of missing shade of blue kind of case, the sort of missing content kind of case, becomes more of a real problem when you take that on board. And I think it's um, it makes teleosemantics more robust in the sense that um, in the sense that with a second-order similarity system of representation, the contents of the representations get assigned en masse. You, you don't need a, a selection history, a specific, or, you know, in the case of intentional systems, you don't need a 
specific specification for each individual representation. It's kind of assigned en masse. So the doctor, for example, doesn't have to tell you, you know, use one for this, use two for this, use three for that, use four for that. The doctor just has to say, look, here's the range, one to ten. Here's the way it's oriented to pain intensities. And one is, is no pain and, and ten is the worst imaginable agony. And you do the rest. She, you know, she doesn't have to explain to you the role of the number six. You can figure it out from there. And I think that similarly with um, representations being assigned by the brain during development, that you could have a sort of more spotty selection history uh, assigning the contents because of this um, uh, phenomenon of their, their contents being assigned en masse rather than one by one. Uh, we're, we're starting to run out of time here, so I do want to get to um, uh, the, the stopping problem, which you also spend a bit of time on, right? This idea that you have a causal chain and what, what, what makes one, one step in that causal chain the content uh, rather than another. Could you, could you say a bit about how you solve that problem? Mm, well, I hope I solve that problem, but I guess that's the part of the book that I go back and forth on. Um, yeah, so I don't think CT solves that problem. I think that's pretty clear. Um, the problem uh, is, um, you know, it's most obvious in the case of a causal theory of reference because you've always got causal chains and you've always got more than one cause of representation being produced. But it does occur for other theories of content as well. You can make it, you know, you have to frame it slightly differently, but the problem arises for other versions of teleosemantics and other theories of content as well. But it's very vivid in the case of a causal theory a reference for perceptual representations. You know, you're looking at a cow and light comes reflected from the cow onto your retinal image and so on. And, and why is the content the cow rather than something else along these along this causal chain? And um, that's a that's a sort of conceptualized perception, a perception that's being imbued with a, a, a sort of some conceptual content where you see something as a cow. So I don't try to deal with that particular kind of case, but I do take on the problem as it concerns, you know, more non-conceptual representation, the kind of case that might arise with something, you know, like a toad or something, or, um, you know, some of the earlier visual uh, representations that uh, I discuss. And what I say there is that... Um, I think at that point you need to add a further principle and um, it's important to understand that you've only got candidate contents at this point that have already sort of survived the rest of the theory. You can't kind of use this principle on its own. It has to be added in and used to discriminate among the contents that still remain as candidate contents. But I say, yeah, look, it, it, it's true that if um, if the visual system, if certain processes in the visual system are selected to respond to light, um, uh, because that's a means of responding to things like cows and colours and so on, then it really is selected to respond to both. You know, you can't have one without the other. You know, if it's selected to respond to light, because that's a means to respond to cows, etc., then it really is selected to respond to both. And so CT alone does not give you that distal content there. But I say that, I point out just that there's an asymmetry in the information relation, which I treat as a causal relation. And I, I um, point out that uh, in some cases, a system is selected to respond to something only because it's a means to respond to other things and not vice versa. So, um, you know, the, the visual system is selected to respond to light because it's a means of responding to things like, you know, visual targets in worm-like motion. 
as opposed to, you know, visual system is not selected to respond to its, you know, to light uh, for its own sake. It's selected to respond to um, items that reflect light. And so it's, it's, it's an appeal to this asymmetry. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. And I did, I did want to sort of urge you or, or press you a little bit to, to speculate about uh, you mentioned at the beginning that there were some chapters that you had written about conceptual content that you that you cut out. Um, and one of the questions that I had was how this basic theory, you know, what how you might speculate as to how this might be the start of a a theory of content for thought, right? For conceptual contents. Um, and maybe this is part of like where you're going next. Um, I, I don't know. So um, could you maybe speculate a bit about what, uh, you know, how you, how you think someone who is interested in using this to, to go on to explain thought content, um, how, how that story just might go? Uh, I can try. Um, yeah, I I think that people could go in a number of different directions. And um, so I think that you could take the attitude, some people might take the attitude that you just need a completely different independent theory for concepts. They might think that the content of concepts, you know, the concepts to have original intentionality. So maybe you need different theories for non-conceptual representations and for conceptual representations and maybe they need to be completely independent. I strongly suspect that that's not true. I suspect that um, it's good to start a theory of concepts, being able to assume that you've already got a theory of the content of non-conceptual representations and that you can take that for granted and that you can use as part of your resources uh, in trying to develop your theory of content all of these non-conceptual representations. Now, exactly how you go about doing that, that would be nice if I could give you an answer to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so my, my next move in relation to thinking about this is, again, I like to break it down. I like to try to think what, what are the kind of simplest cases from here on. And I would like to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, – what kind of conceptual repertoire, if any, uh, some would want to add, um, can a creature uh, have if it's a non-linguistic creature? You know, what role does language play in concept acquisition for us? And what kind of concepts could non-linguistic creatures possess? Because I think that would be the next relatively, relatively simple step. Um, and, of course, people use the word concept in so many different ways. And so, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how that will be understood by different people. But, but I, I do think that non-linguistic creatures uh, can possess some concepts, at least what uh, I think Jesse Prince calls them appearance concepts, where you're trying to track and store a record, maybe a statistical record of the features of um, certain types of items in your environment. And um, so I'd like to, you know, I think that that step is relatively easy. And then beyond that is uh, a whole range of other kinds of concepts that really need to be considered quite separately. Toward the end of Jerry Fodel's uh, and Zenon and Pilishin's recent book, they talk about how, you know, we have to sort of treat these different categories of concepts differently. And they don't tell you how to treat them, but they claim that you need to treat them differently. And I think that that's right. I think that you need to then uh, divide and conquer. You need to take it slowly and look at the different kinds of concepts there are. And think, you know, think about some of them uh, being closer to original intentionality than others. Okay. Well, um, we're, we're out of time and you've been very generous uh, with your time. And I'd like to and with a question, you know, what is on the horizon for you? Are you, are you, you know, actually taking this next uh, step or are you turning to other topics? What's, what are you working on? 
Yeah, I'm pretty single-minded. I think I um, can't let go of the, you know, the general problem of intentionality and do want to put some of the some of the material I have on concepts uh, together with more extended treatment of other parts of it. So, you know, up until now I've been doing uh, bits and pieces that, you know, had to be done after getting the book off. Um, but yeah, that's, that would be what I would be aiming to do. Excellent. Well, um, again, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to talk with new books in philosophy and, um, I wish you luck with the, with the new, with the, the work in progress. And I look forward to seeing, seeing it. Thank you so much, Carrie. It was really good to be here. You've been listening to my interview with Karen Neander, who is Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. We've been talking about her new book, A Mark of the Mental in Defense of Informational Teleosemantics, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thanks again for listening.